American Timelines is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. Find out more at QueenCityPodcastNetwork.com. So now I'm obsessed with time. Come on, tell me about the time. Had it all in my head tonight. Had the time of my life. When the words all come down, like blues on Tuesdays come down. Throw it all away. Welcome to another episode of American Timelines. I'm Amy, and that's Joe. And we are History for Jerks, and we are back with another jam-packed episode of history and ridiculousness. That's right. Uh, And we're in 1951, and we are so excited. This week, we have a guest who also, uh, you may remember, has crossed over with us uh, from the Grand Project. We have my friend and colleague, Kitty Janrin, joining us. Welcome, Kitty. Welcome. Thanks for having me. I'm very excited to be here. Yes, thank you so much, Kitty. Um, we are idiots. Well, I'm an idiot. So thanks for uh, taking the time out and being here with uh, an idiot podcast. Kitty's is actually a normal podcast. Uh, <laughs> not, <laughs> not run by jerks. Uh, it's run by a normal person. And it's really so cool. Can you tell us a little bit about it, Kitty? Sure. So I host a podcast called The Grand Project. um, And basically, I talk to older people about their experiences as grandparents or kind of stepping into the role of being a grandparent um, and just talk to them about their lives and what it is like to kind of grow up and grow old and see their kids and grandkids do the same. It's so cool. And now you started this, you weren't planning on doing this, right? You just had a whim, like during the pandemic, you kind of decided to go about this? Yeah. So, I mean, a few years ago, I got really into the idea of oral histories. Yes. And I was doing my undergraduate thesis on oral histories and decided might as well talk to my grandparents. At the time, all four of them were living and oh, I lucky. wanted to kind of just know more about what it was like for them growing up and I started it kind of half-heartedly, just taking a cheap recorder whenever I would go to visit, but nothing really came of it. You know, it was, I love to transcribe interviews, but it's a lot of work. And so I haven't really revisited them. And during the pandemic last summer, my uh, dad's mom actually passed away kind of unexpectedly. And so, yeah, I, but you know, it was one of those things where I just had been thinking about the podcast world for a while, like every millennial, I'm sure, (laughs) and um, decided it was time to, you know, just go and talk to my other grandparents. And I have a lot of older people in my life. And um, I just think their stories are really important. And I'm a big history buff, which, you know, (laughs) was a big part of it, too. I love it. And I think... I think it, the history part, I did that with my grandmother for um, college, for grad school. Oh, cool. And um, I, it was so funny because I, it, back then, it was the little tiny cassette tapes. Yeah. That's how I did yeah, it. Little, yeah. I was with her and I put the little cassette tape in and then I had I to transcribe it. it yeah. I couldn't, I wanted to share it. She died and I wanted to share it with her. She's got five kids. 
but um, wow. she badmouthed all of them on the on the tape, so I couldn't share it with them. I was like, "Oh God, this is going to bring up psychological well, well, trauma." Now they know if they listen to this podcast. Well, luckily they don't listen to the podcast. No, so they, they don't. don't. So. <laughs> I had to. I had an acting class in college where we had to interview someone and and then memorize it and then perform as them, like sort of an huh, uh, like an a, acting thing. Yeah, for yeah. acting. Yeah, so it was like sort of get their mannerisms down and sort of like not really an impression so much. So I did my grandfather uh, and I, I had like a two hour interview with them that my family's all bugging me for today. Do you still have that tape of grandpa and all this? Yeah. And I have, I think I have the recording of me being him, but I don't know if I have his recording, but it's like one of those things <laughs> like you don't think about it until later that boy, oh, we should have mm-hmm. saved that. Or I wish yeah. I had that on, but I was so, the whole family was so glad that I sat down with them because he was like a guy who would never talk like he never talked about himself. Like he just was into family and doing his thing and Yeah. And everybody gathered around and I had a camera on him and my whole family was sitting behind listening to these stories that nobody's ever heard. And it so so reminded me of your podcast. And so I find myself like listening to it and I'll get teary, like it'll remind me of my grandparents or It'll be a sweet moment, and I'll be like, "Geez, what's wrong? You know, what's, what's wrong with me?" And it's so sweet and good that I was like, "Oh my god, you got to keep doing this." Um, so I've just fell in love with it right away. And so thanks for doing it, and thanks for being here. And let's, without further ado, let's jump right into some history. All right, history sounds good. Here. All right, so we're in it. We left off in March of 1951, and so we're starting April of 1951, and we're going to cover this whole month, um, and. I, my first thing I have is from April 11th, 1951, um, President Harry Truman uh, decided to relieve General Douglas MacArthur of command in Korea. So we've touched a little bit on this on previous episodes. This is the, during the Korean War. This is big oh boy. right now. Oh, here's my dog. There's uh, <laughs> Wheezy. Um, and so so this was kind of a controversial moment. Okay, you stop. No bite. No bite. We got a puppy. She's nine months old, and so she. <laughs> so oh goodness! She's learning how to. She's learning to stop biting. Okay, sorry. So as I said, this is the Korean War, and uh, so I don't know if you guys know much about the Korean War or military history at this time. No, I, I, not I, me. I don't really <laughs> as much. Like I, I'm not really into war as much, but I try to do enough research just to understand what happened here and. Basically, it was, it was looked at as controversial because President Truman relieved General Douglas MacArthur of command in Korea. Like, he was in command, and he basically fired him uh, in the middle of a war, which wow. a lot of people were very upset because everybody loved MacArthur. He was a war hero from World War II. Um, Why did he do it? So, that's what I'm trying to see if I can explain well. So, uh, the general reason was that he felt MacArthur's, this is according to history.com, MacArthur's desire to expand the Korean War conflicted with the nation's foreign policy. Um, and President Truman felt he had no alternative but to replace MacArthur, and he informed the, a pu- the public of his decision in a radio report the same day. But to dumb it down for us, I'm just going to say, so I, I fell down this MacArthur rabbit hole. Like, mm-hmm. he went to West Point, and he was involved in, like, a hazing incident where some guy got hazed. Some some amazing kid got hazed and then quit and then went and he died of tuberculosis because he was so sad. Some, some, wait, this is not, can we take her inside? 
It's so hard to get up. I know. I, let's, oh, I love you too. Oh, I love you. Oh, I know. You, but you got to settle down. Wait, maybe I can get it. Settle. <laughs> okay. Settle down. Saddle. Just lay down. Lay down. Lay down. We need a, she needs a chew bone. Good girl. There you go. Okay. Sorry. Uh, that doesn't always happen. Um, so anyway, but MacArthur, so because he was a hero and people were very upset, it boiled down to the fact that there was a couple battles. So North Korea invaded South Korea, which kind of got us involved in it. And so even after they kind of pushed North Korea out of South Korea, then he wanted to go further and kind of capture North Korea. And then he wanted to bomb because China got involved. And according to a Time Magazine article in the 70s, MacArthur wanted to bomb China and use nationalist Chinese forces on Taiwan against the communists. Um, and so that and Truman basically said, I fired him because he wouldn't respect the authority of the president. You know, he was trying to keep it a little bit down. more so, contained. Yeah, and more then... contained. And so that's that's how I understand it. <laughs> so I'm not going to. So it sounds can, like he yeah. was just a warmonger. Yeah. I mean. I mean yeah, I mean, he was a hero from Japan, you know, from World War II and uh, fighting with Japan and everything. And so at some point, you must get such a big head that I am a, mm -hmm. you know, a big cheese. I'm the best, you know, mm -hmm. you're not going to stop. You know, China def looked at, they defeated him, sort of, like they drove him out of North Korea. And so I think, I think... It, I don't know how you couldn't get a big head like that in in a world war like that and not yeah not yeah. I mean I'm not defending it saying I would but wouldn't it lose touch with reality I think of like people like CEOs of big companies always seem to be out of touch with reality and things like that so yeah. it's like okay. just drunk well, with power yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know anyway like look at what's his name the Facebook guy uh, Mark Zuckerberg Mark Zuckerberg you know like yeah. So if you were, imagine if you were, felt like you dominated entire other countries and were a hero, you would just, I don't think you'd stop. I don't know. Maybe not. Mm -hmm. War is a weird thing. I don't, I don't claim to understand it, but that's all I'm going to say about that. <laughs> Thank God. Because there's so much about, I mean, we could just, <laughs> this could just be a Korean War podcast, um, <laughs> except that I, I probably would... got half of that wrong. <laughs> April 17th. I'm going to jump to April 17th, which was a Tuesday. And uh, another thing that I know you, I don't know if Kitty cares about sports much, but I know you don't. So I'll make this brief also. Uh, New York Yankee Mickey Mantle uh, made his debut, his first game uh, in Major League Baseball. And he, goes, oh. he went one for four. You've heard Mickey Mantle, yeah. right, ladies? Yeah, yeah are you, you, of course. Are you a big Mickey Mantle fan, Kitty? <laughs> I know who he is. <laughs> yeah. I think he was an alcoholic, if I recall. I think they all were back then. Yeah. Like, if you think about old school was... baseball players, they're all fat white guys. Yeah. Like they didn't have any. Anyway, he played right field for the New York Yankees, and he quickly became a star in a succession of historic names that had played for the Yankees, showing his talent both in center field and as a hitter. He would go on to become the highest paid player in baseball by 1961 and would set a record of games played at 2,401. That would stand until 2011, when the record was broken by Derek Jeter. Oh. Yep. After retirement, Mickey opened a restaurant and sports bar on Central Park South that proved popular and remained open from 1988 to 2011. In recognition of his accomplishments, Mickey's uniform number was retired from use 
on June 8, 1969, on what would be known as Mickey Mantle Day. Ju- what was it? June what? June 8, 8? 1969 okay. is when he would retire. But this is, <laughs> this was his debut today in 1951. Okay. So he just made his debut. Mickey Mantle, there you go. Um, and And two days later, on a Thursday, mm-hmm. April 19th, 1951, uh, was the Boston Marathon. Okay. Um, and I know a couple times we've talked about the Boston Marathon. I think we talked about in the '60s the first woman to ever do it. Yeah. Um, and maybe that's all we've talked. I feel like there was another one. There was a weird. Oh, there's that person who who lied and said she won it. She, oh, that's like, right. Snuck into it like yeah. halfway through and then won it. Um, so those are the couple times we do we've touched on. So yeah, this one is a big thing too for the Boston Marathon. Less than six years earlier, a 14 year old Shigeki Tanaka had watched from a nearby village as an atomic bomb crippled the city of Hiroshima on August 6, 1945. But on this day, April 19, 1951, he won the Boston Marathon. Oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah. So it's pretty amazing because a lot of reasons. Um, Number one, the 1951 Boston Marathon was only the second post-World War II athletic competition in the world that people allowed uh, Japanese athletes in. Oh, I mean, everybody yeah. just banned yeah. Japanese yeah. athletes because of the war. Yeah. Um, the first one was the 1951 Asian Games in New Delhi. So it was new. Like, a Japanese guy won it for the first time they were allowed back in it. Wow. The sad thing is, this year, uh, despite sweeping the top three places in the 1950 Boston Marathon, Koreans were not allowed to play. Oh, my to, God. To you're run kidding. In this marathon. Yeah, because of the Korean War. Yeah, right. Um, and... A quote from... Which is weird, because weren't we fighting with South Korea? You know, yeah. So why, I mean, to why would people them? be prejudiced against Koreans? I mean, it's well, a civil well, here, war here, that we're in. Here's what the president of the BAA said, the Boston Athletic Association. He said that his quote was, while American soldiers are fighting and dying in Korea, every Korean should be fighting to protect his country instead of training for marathons. Oh, my God. Uh, Walter A. Brown was the president. Who said yeah. that. And he said, as long as the war continues there, we positively will not affect Korean entries for our race on April 19th. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 so problematic in many ways now, you mm-hmm. know, and then. But that's just kind of how things were like there's mm-hmm. brace yourself because the racism is rampant in this story. Uh, yeah. <clears throat> uh, so back to Shigeki Tanaka. He was one of four Japanese runners invited to compete by Will Cloney of the Boston Athletic Association. Shigeki Tanaka was five foot four and a half, 118 pounds, and he was set to enroll at Nihon University upon his return to Japan. And he was the only runner on the squad not sponsored by a corporate team. And these guys, uh, oops, they it was they had no money. So they had to stop in Hawaii, San Francisco, and New York City to get to Boston. Mm-hmm. And they had to kind of stop at these fundraisers uh, to have enough money to even get there. Oh, wow. So, um, and one of Tanaka's teachers told him it was important for him to learn how to eat with a knife and fork. Any slight misstep could be seized upon by the American press. And because they were just like, you know, racist vultures then. Oh, and um, Tanaka said, we had no money. Uh, he told the Boston Globe, uh, ordinary people would donate to help us go. We They'd go to these movie theaters and people would wrap money in paper and throw it on the stage like for them to collect, I guess. And okay. He said, 
it felt pretty strange to receive money like that, like a beggar almost. He said, we bought sugar to bring back to Japan. That's how bad things were. Oh, Isn't that crazy? Yeah. So uh, in general, he said he received a warm reception in the U.S. He did say he found it a burden that the Boston Globe called me Atomic Boy uh, in the newspaper all the time. Oh. Uh, and so when he won the event in the third fastest time in the history, two hours, 27 minutes, and 45 seconds. I don't know anything about yeah. marathons, if that's a good thing or not. I guess it's good. But the I mean, if I had to run that distance in <laughs> yeah. two hours, <laughs> that, that seems like a pretty remarkable time to me. Yeah. Two, uh, yeah. I, what is a marathon? What it, I have no we idea. We looked don't, it up one time. Yeah. It was just like. Don't ask I can't me. even imagine. We, we talked about this on an earlier episode. Like. People's nipples bleed, like their feet, their toes are bleeding, like they can't walk. They break bones in their feet just to run a marathon. I don't get it. I don't, yeah, I don't get it. A little, like, little extreme. Yeah, I think I'm in great shape because I walked two miles today with this dog. Um, <laughs> but anyway, so after he, he won, there was all these racist headlines in the papers. Jap wins grind, Lafferty second. Lafferty was the American guy they thought would win. Um one guy, the Globe's Jerry Nason, was the worst. Uh, some of his excerpts from his story were things like this. Quote, Shigaki Tanaka from far away Hiroshima, Japan. Unloading point for history's first atomic bomb is by no means radioactive. Uh, he, he was so far ahead of his marathon opposition yesterday afternoon that it appeared as if they feared to approach him without a Geiger counter. They called him the Brown Bomber from Hiroshima and things like that. Uh, and then and then when he was interviewed by the press afterwards, they just kept asking questions about bombs and, and the war Jeez. and everything. It's just like really crazy. So, uh, and then later in 1998, Tanaka's medal was stolen. Somebody broke into his house and stole it. But the cool thing is the Boston uh, Athletic Association replaced it, sent him oh, a new good. one. So, no, that was 98. It was a little bit less terrible. Mm -hmm. uh, then, but um, in all, between 1951 and 1969, Japan, the kind of him winning this kind of inspired other Japanese athletes. So between 51 and 69, Japan sent athletes to Boston on 10 occasions. Six times they came away with a laurel wreath, including one, two, and three sweeps in 65 and 66. Ooh. I got all this from Let's Run dot com, from an article from Hiroshima to Boston. Shigeki Tanaka's journey to become the first Japanese winner of the Boston Marathon by Jonathan Galt in April of 2017. Okay. All right. That's cool. Yeah, we're wrapping. We're getting close to you, you ladies stuff too. I don't have a lot of things, but I do have a little thing we do, Kitty. Uh, that I actually because we're on this we're on Facebook Messenger. We have a little thing uh, that we do when I bring up somebody who was born in 1951. Amy gets very upset, but I have a theme song now, and it goes like this. <laughs> Uh, today, on April 20th, 1951, Luther Vandross was born in the Bronx. All right. Luther Vandross is an important guy in history. Yeah. He was born at Bellevue Hospital in the Kipps Bay neighborhood of Manhattan, New York City. He was the fourth child and second son of Mary Ida Vandross and Luther Vandross Sr. His father was an upholsterer and a singer, and his mother was a nurse. Mm -hmm. I mean, I always want to know that. No. He was raised in Manhattan's <laughs> Lower East Side in the NYCHA Alfred E. Smith houses, public housing. 
development. At the age of three, having his own phonograph, Vandross taught himself to play piano by ear. Oh, that's cool. And that's it about Luther Vandross. I won't go anymore. I have... What's, you have paragraphs. I do. I have what school he went to. <laughs> um, and I know you hate birthdays. I don't hate birthdays. And by the look, of, the look on Kitty's face, she also hates birthdays. <laughs> uh, she is mad right now. Uh, <laughs> just kidding, everyone. And then on April 21st, it was a Saturday. It was the NBA championship and the uh, Stanley Cup finals on the same day. The Rochester Royals beat the New York Knicks 79 to 75 to take the series four games to three. It was the first finals appearance for both teams. Mm-hmm. And we talked on an earlier episode that the Rochester Royals became the, was it the San Antonio. I tuned this Spurs, section out, so don't uh, ask me. <laughs> and then the Stanley Cup final was the Maple Leaf Gardens. Was in Maple Leaf Gardens in Toronto. The Toronto Maple Leafs beat the Montreal Canadiens three to two for a four to one series victory. I don't care about hockey either. But that same day was also. Amy, Amy hates birthday. Amy hates birthday. Tony Danza's birthday. Oh, you've been waiting for that. I one. cannot not mention Tony Danza's <laughs> birthday. I think it's a good time to re-insert uh, the little sound clip we have. Samantha. That's a hickey. Did you ever watch Who's the Boss, Kitty? I know you're. It's I know probably, you know. It's probably too. You would have had to watch it on TV Land or something. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So yeah, that'll. You didn't age miss up, anything. Yeah. You, no, you did miss. No, something. you didn't miss anything. No. Uh, I always forget the name of the. Uh, Alyssa Milano was the daughter on that, and I she's my age, and I had a crush on Alyssa Milano. Yes. Everyone, everyone <laughs> did. Anyway, Tony Danza. You know who Tony Danza is though, Kitty. You're familiar. Yes, so, I do. And he was on was, Taxi, yeah? Oh, no, I was just thinking about Tony Danza the other day as I was listening to Elton John's Tiny Dancer. Oh, <laughs> yes. Tony Danza. Yes. That's right. Yes, that's the best way to think about Tony Danza. Hold me closer, Tony Danza. Yeah, he was born in Brooklyn, New York. The parents, Ann Camisa and Matt, Maddie Anthony Ayadanza. So that's his real full name is Ayadanza. His mother was a bookkeeper, and his father worked as a waste collector in Brooklyn. Are you sure that's not La Danza? Oh, I, it would be a lower. Why would it be a lower oh, case? That's true. It could be La Danza. I don't know. It doesn't matter. Oh no! <laughs> now it's a controversy. It doesn't I'm matter. Have to look it up later. All right, I'll look it up during your murder. Your gross. No, you won't. Murder. You have to listen, or else you'll ask dumb questions. <laughs> okay. All right, I'll look it up later, and I'll add it back in in post. <sighs> All right. Anyway, Tony Danza was born. And now the world can go on. Um, okay, we're almost to you ladies. This other thing I feel like we have to talk about because he's an important guy. But I bet. Are you, did you look at my paper? My no, paper? I can't. April 23rd, 1951. There was a famous death. And this, I will quiz you two history buffs to oh see boy. if you know who this person is. Because I was, a, I'm embarrassed to say I didn't know who this was. Okay. Uh, I shouldn't have said that. I should have admitted it. Anyway. Charles Charles G. Dawes died on that day. Hmm. Does one hmm. of you know who he is? I do not. Okay. Yes. I don't. Okay, either. so now I don't feel so bad. Uh, Are we going to feel stupid? Is this an no, obvious one? No, I don't. It must not be obvious. I thought it was until you both didn't know it was. But he was a former vice president of the United States. Oh, he was yeah, ca- the vice presidents, I'm not real. You just forget about them, don't you? Yeah, they're kind of dustbin. <coughs> yeah, dustbin. dustbin. He was Calvin history. Coolidge's. He was Calvin Coolidge's vice president. Okay. So, 
I'm mad at myself because I, you know, I can name all the presidents in order, but sometimes I'll hear the name of a vice president or I'll look up who a vice president was. I've never once heard their name or know anything no. about them. Yeah. Um, so it makes me want to start a podcast where you just delve into the vice presidents. So everybody God, knows who they are. Who the fuck would listen to that? <laughs> yeah, no, that's, well, I, you don't do podcasts for listeners. You do it for you, right? Yeah, I guess or not. No, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> Kitty, do you want to do a vice president podcast someday? I do not think I am the person to do that. <laughs> no. <laughs> that was a very polite way of saying no. Anyway, he died on April 23rd, 1951 at his Evanston home from coronary, coronary thrombosis at the age of 85. Okay. Um, he he and Calvin Coolidge, you know, he was the vice president, and they kind of split ways and uh, got mad at each other. Um, and I'm I'm not going to go into the big whole thing. I had it all planned out, but um, I'm going to save that for the vice president podcast. So. Yeah, I think that's a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> but he, uh, yeah, he, I'm trying to remember what it was exactly. Oh, it was like, uh, it was a. Uh, it was a vote on something that he didn't agree with. So. Oh, I think he's most famous for one of those things where it was a it was a same it was like today where the Senate and the House were tied and the Vice President would, yes. would uh, uh make cast the make the cast a tie breaking vote. So there was a vote on something. He went home to take a nap, thinking it wouldn't be close. It ended up being real close. And by the time they called him and he was going to come back. Uh, somebody changed their vote and it got shot down. Whatever it was that they were, they oh, were doing, okay. I can't remember what it was. It was uh, so he got mad at him because he. So yeah, so yeah, <laughs> the president got mad at him because he because it 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 was a big whatever it was. It was a big thing they were going to pass. Uh, I can't remember what it was now. It was a uh, oh, it was a it was a nomination of somebody, an attorney general or something. I don't know. Anyway, but. It's, it, Come here for all your information. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I really knew that. And I have it all here, but it, it, it'll take a lot to explain it all. So, but anyway, I just, all that to say he died. He died all right. on day. And we'll get to that if we get to the 40s or on my vice presidential podcast. And I'll start with my friend Rich, who loves vice presidents. And then Wednesday, oh no, that brings us to Amy, your story. That brings us to Wednesday, April 25th. I understand you have. Probably a grisly murder and an awful rape to tell us about. I have. Okay. So, um, I found a case, but as is often the case with 1950s, um, there was very little information. There was just like a paragraph, but it took me down a rabbit hole. And I think like I started seeing this suspect's name in a bunch of different cases. Okay. So I kind of put it all together, you know, uh, to try to see if we think maybe he's re- he's like responsible for. Oh, so a are bunch we gonna are cases. we gonna solve this? Is this like those packages you can? Send well, away it's not for? like it's not common knowledge amongst people who would know this that oh. that a lot of people think this. So we'll see. Well, I love a good rabbit hole. So I got a bunch of. I have a bunch of sources, so I'll just, I won't name each one if you want yeah, to just Yeah, if you just them. email them to me or send yeah. them to me, I'll put them in the description. Okay. All right. That sounds good. So uh, I'm going to talk about William Henry Redmond. William Henry Redmond. Okay. I Do not you know who this is, Kitty? No. 
I do not. I, never heard I of would this guy. not imagine. If you did know who this was, I'd be like, What, what if Kitty Dew was an expert and then just like <laughs> dropped all this knowledge and then it ruined your whole story? That'd be hilarious. So <laughs> William Henry Redmond for decades operated in the sleazy neon slime of the American carnival. Oh, carnies. Ooh. The carny. Carnies are awesome. They're great. And yeah. Gross. At, at one time, carnivals were the place to hide from cops, ex-wives, military service, and maybe yourself. Oh, my gosh. Drifting from town to town, Redmond would sit stone-faced, operating a Ferris wheel. And when the <laughs> show was done, he hit the road, ambling into the next town. Have you seen, I mean, even current day, I think this continues, have, have you ever not been creeped out by a carny? Oh, I've never like, been not been creeped out by one. <laughs> I mean, not that all carnies are creepy, but there's always a couple of Most of carnies. them, they're missing fingers uh, and they don't have a lot of teeth. Now, now, my good friend Patty Dots was a carny, so let's not, not disparage all carnies. That's true. Just most carnies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, just I'm fascinated by carnies. Like, I would go to a carnival just to stare at the carnies. Like, like, <laughs> like poke, at, poke at them and see what all they right. do. But too often... Cops believe Redmond was leaving behind the corpses of brutalized young girls. Oh, what a perfect way to be a, a murdering spree, a, a member a of a carny. Yeah. So cops town fingered him for the Pennsylvania murder of Jane Marie Althoff, Beverly Potts murdered in Cleveland, Barbara Gotza, Gotza, I think is how you're supposed to say it, in Michigan, and maybe Connie Smith in Connecticut. And there are likely many more. Ooh, good old killer. For for Street decades, killer. Redmond, a lean-faced, ill-tempered, hard man who seldom smiled. <laughs> lean-faced, ill-tempered, hard man? Yep. Eluded cops in prison. He was never far off the radar. Ohio-born Redmond's penchant for young girls first appeared in 1935 when he sexually attacked two young girls in Lancaster, Ohio. Uh. In 1938, he was busted again in Ohio for the attempted rape of a preteen girl. Oh, he skated on another sex assault in Florida in 1949. And then detectives believe he turned to murder. Murder. Oops. Hold on. I just, uh -oh, just did something. Okay, there we go. Um, so the first the first one they're thinking yeah. about was a, a little girl named Joanne Lynn. Oh, uh, a little and she girl. She was just eleven. Oh. On and this was oh. September thirtieth, nineteen forty nine. Oh, September thirtieth, nineteen forty nine. He murdered this poor little girl the same day that Mao Zedong was elected chairman of the new central government of People's Republic of China. Yes. Chairman Mao. Yes. He became Chairman Mao that same day. Um, she was found shot to death outside Rochester, New York. Oh. At the time of her murder, Redmond was working at a fair five miles away. And this is a little bit, a little bit more into her story. Her, her, yeah. Her, so she, as she did every weekday morning, Joanna Anna Lynn, 11, left her home at 8 o'clock. On September nineteenth, nineteen forty nine, to walk her home. to school. She left her home the same day that model and actress and singer Twiggy was born. Yes, in Middlesex. So fall had come early that year, and the trees were rust red along State Road fifteen A in Hemlock, New York. Joanne wore a blue and white candy striped dress, a red sweater, white bobby socks, and tan shoes. According to local reports, she was described as being five feet two inches tall and weighing one hundred eighteen pounds. She'd gone barely an eighth of a mile from her home when she disappeared. Two motorists said they saw a girl fitting her description walking toward a 1938 to 1940 gray sedan with Pennsylvania license plates. Huh. The village of Hemlock lies in the Finger Lakes region of New York. A few miles south of Rochester in the 1940s, the area was mostly rural. Did I say it right? I think you said 
You said it as right as you've ever said rural. <laughs> rural. That's how you say it. Rural. I, it's rural. rural. And you say rural for some reason. I don't. I can't say it. All right. R- rural. Rural. Kitty, how do you say it? Rural. Yeah, like it rhymes with curl. Rural. Yeah. Rural. Rural. It doesn't sound rural. right. Rural. Yeah. Rural. <laughs> Not rural. All right. Anyway, when Joanne didn't return home from Hemlock Central School that afternoon, her mother contacted police. She was described as a normal, happy girl who looked forward to attending Hemlock Fair on the weekend. On September 19th, 14-year-old Norma Mardson was gathering butternuts four miles from Hemlock. 200 yards off Route 15A, she came across the body of Joanne Lynn. Such a 1950s thing to do, gathering butternuts. Butternuts, yeah. The child lay face down in a ditch. Lieutenant William M. Stevenson of Batavia Police told reporters she'd probably been lured or dragged into an auto and taken out of the car and shot twice as she cringed in the grove of locust trees. Uh, One bullet entered her forehead and pierced her arm as she tried to shield her face. The other entered her left breast and emerged from her back. Both bullets were collected as evidence. Uh, Dr. Herbert R. Brown Livingston, county pathologist, reported that there was evidence of an attempted attempt to rape, but the act had not been completed. Fingernail scrapings suggested she had fought her attacker. Um, in a bizarre twist, even though she was clothed, her sweater and undergarments were missing. Huh. Keep that in your noggin. Okay. That's a clue for later. Yeah. On April 25th, 1951. April 25th? You mean the same day that Charlie Wilde, private detective starring Kevin O'Morrison, was on CBS? Yes. He was a private investigator with headquarters in New York City with most of his cases involving murder. He often he often used violence to solve cases. Okay, bending the law at times without actually breaking it. Yes, investigator Charlie Wilde. On that day, Jane Marie Althoff, who was eight years old, was found murdered in a pickup truck. She had gone to the carnival the day before with her brother, six-year-old Paul, and sixteen-year-old Lamar, according to news accounts from the time. But the older boy was not allowed to take his bicycle on the grounds and left the young children there. I bet he got a whooping. Oh, I bet, yeah. Jean- Jane Marie was seen whispering to William Redmond and told a friend she had a secret with him, according to reports. Uh, she was strangled that night. Police say Redmond's fingerprints were found throughout the truck cab. A warrant for his arrest for questioning was issued in January 1952, but apparently was never served because he could not be located. Without taking time to pick up his paycheck, he had left the carnival after it stopped in Lock Haven in central Pennsylvania. Then on August 24th, 1951. Oh, the same day that the Ad-Libbers was on, a, was on CBS. It was a comedy sketch game show that uh, it was a summer replacement for Mama. Five live shows were broadcast before the series ended. Home viewers were invited to send in story ideas. The host would read the story outline to the performers, who would then attempt to ad-lib dialogue to fit the story. Oh, it had regulars, regulars included Jack Lemon, Charles Mendick, Patricia Housley. Uh, and uh, Peter Donald was the host. That okay. sounds like a cool thing. Yeah, that that would be interesting. So I will just like lighten up your awfulness with yeah, some with whatever that lighthearted is. Lighthearted ridiculousness. That's okay. All right. Um, I guess that's what we do. On that day, Beverly Potts of ten of Cleveland attended a local carnival, and she was never seen again. Ugh. Blonde, blue-eyed Potts was described as a shy, quiet, and responsible child, fascinated by the performing arts who was due to enter the fifth grade in the fall of 1951. Mm-hmm. On August 24th, she and her friend and neighbor, Patsy Swing, were given permission to see the show wagon, an annual summer children's performance event, being held at the evening in Halloran Park, less than a quarter mile from the girls' homes. This was a special treat, as the park was generally considered unsafe after dark when large oh. trees dimmed the surrounding streetlights. 
It was also frequented by the local vagrant population. Oh, boy. The two girls initially went to the park on their bicycles at around 7 p.m. At 8 p.m., deciding it would be easier to maneuver on foot through the large crowds in attendance, they returned home to drop off their bikes, arriving back at the show sometime before 8.30 p.m. At about 8.45 p.m., Swain, who had promised to be home before dark, suggested they leave for home. Potts said that she had been given permission to stay for the entire show, which was not due to end until after 9. So Swain went back to her own house alone. Oh, no. Swain last saw 10 Potts. years old? Yeah. Swing last saw Potts in the crowd, still watching the performance on stage. Oh, man. That's nuts. That's how it was in the 50s. Yep. Ten-year-olds were just... Go do what you need to do. Whatever. At about 9.30 p.m. when the show had ended and the park was emptying, a 13-year-old boy who knew Potts saw her heading diagonally across the park in a northeastern direction. This would have been the quickest route back to her house, which would then be only a few minutes walk away. The boy recognized Potts by her distinctive duck-like gait, walking with toes pointed outward. Several other other witnesses said they had seen a girl resembling Potts near a battered black 1937 Dodge Coupe idling on West 117th Street, apparently speaking to two young men inside. The various witnesses placed this encounter anywhere between 8.30 and 9.30, but none of them had seen the girl entering the car. When Potts did not return home by 10, her family began searching. About an hour having, about an hour later, having found no sign of her, they called the police. The police immediately began a large-scale search of their own, but were unable to find any trace of Potts. Her family members were quickly quickly cleared. Investigators determined that her home life had been stable and by all accounts happy, and there appeared to be no reason for her to have run away. While in prison, uh, William Redmond reportedly told a cellmate that he had killed three other young girls. When questioned about the Potts case in particular, he refused to make a statement one way or the other. He was in the general area at the time of Potts' disappearance and had a record of child molestation convictions dating back to 1935, which we know. However, Potts would have been considered older than his previous victims, which is the only... Only difference? Yeah. Well, maybe it's... Well, she walked like a duck, so maybe that's what he liked. The duck walk. Maybe. Th- there's one more. Uh, Connie Smith, 10, disappeared from a Connecticut YMCA camp in July 1952 and was never seen again. Cops like Redmond for this one, too. And... Um, so what did he go to prison for? Are you going to get to that? Yeah. Or? Okay. Truck drivers were questioned in the disappearance of Connie Smith, as were traveling carnival workers and gypsies from Arkansas who camped along Route 22 and were hired out as barn paint- painters, according to police reports. Okay. One suspect was William Henry Redmond. It was thought that Redmond may have been in the Lakeview area at the time. He passed a polygraph test, though, concerning the Connie Smith case. But we know that those aren't always... Polygraphs are bullshit. Yeah. Right? They don't... Prove anything? Oh no, I'm I lied. There's another one. Oh. Eight year old Barbara Gotcha's body was found March thirty first, nineteen fifty five. Oh, nineteen fifty March thirty first, nineteen fifty five. The same day that on ABC a show called Treasury Men in Action was on. It was a squad of Treasury Department agents <laughs> headed by the chief. They go after counterfeiters and other criminals who commit crimes that fall under the Treasure Treasury Department's jurisdiction. Oh my god, that sounds so boring. It sounds riveting. It yeah, sounds so boring. <laughs> it was on for like three years or something. I can't believe oh it. Um, yeah. Yes. <laughs> um, she. Um, that's when her body was found. She had been missing for a week, and cops determined the small child had been raped and murdered Ugh. on that damp, bleak Thursday when little Bar- Barbara Gatza skipped off to school and never returned. She was settled into a routine as comfortable and predictable as the route her father, Frank, followed every day for 38 years as a Detroit mail carrier. Every morning, she dressed in her blue and white school uniform and black strap shoes, kissed her mother goodbye, 
then walks the six blocks from her house to Assumption Grotto, one of the city's largest Catholic parishes. The second grader attended mass, had breakfast at her desk, then began a long day of study under the watchful eyes of the nuns. Noon provided a welcome break for Barbara and her younger siblings, Gloria and Robert, who weren't allowed to watch television until Barbara came home and personally clicked it on. Then they all had lunch with Soupy Sales. But what? what? Soupy Sales. He was on TV. Well, he was on TV. They yeah. Didn't, like, he didn't, no, he wasn't, wasn't at their house. No. Right. But but on March 24th, 1955. Oh, the same day that on CBS, the show Climax was on. Whoa. This, <laughs> that's, why, that's why I put it in here. It's not as exciting as it sounds. This was an anthology series that presented a different story and a different set of characters on each episode. Oh. Okay. It ran from 54 to 58 and featured Casino Royale of James Bond fame which led to two theatrical movies of the same name. Okay. It starred William Lundigan, Art Gilmore, and Mary Costa. Do you know any of them? No. All right. Well, Climax was on. Okay. Uh, she didn't come home for lunch that day. Her mother called the school office. She had shown up at school at all, she was told. Wasn't she homesick? Police issued a bulletin for the lost youngster. As darkness fell, more and more police were sent out to look for the slender brown-eyed girl in the blue snowsuit and print babush- babushka. Garages, confessionals, garbage cans, and abandoned refrigerators were scoured. The nuns at and 1,100 students at Assumption said rosaries. On Friday night, Frank Gotcha made a television appeal asking whoever had his daughter to set her free. Meanwhile, police rounded up every known pervert and contended with a flurry of tips, rumors, and hoaxes. On March 31st, the large search for in local memory ended when a railroad, railroad worker came across Barbara's body wrapped inside an army blanket. She had been raped, strangled, stabbed, and then discarded at an Oakland County dump site, 25 miles from her home. Friends and relatives were interviewed and cleared. One boy said he spoke to Barbara at the corner of Lynnhurst and Gradio, four blocks from school. She told him she was waiting for a friend. A neighborhood girl said she saw somebody being pulled into a car. Two witnesses reported seeing a 1954 Green Hudson at a gas station 10 miles at, at 10 Mile and Grospect that morning. The driver was described as a 40 to 45-year-old man, about 5 foot 6 inches and 150 pounds. A girl matching Barbara's description was inside the car as an attendant pumped gas. The girl looked frightened, he said. Barbara was found in, wooden, in a wooden hollow. Evidence established the rape and murder occurred within two to four hours of her abduction and that both happened inside a clean car or room. Police focused on three clues found at the crime scene, the blood-stained army blanket, Footprints made by large shoes and fresh tire tracks leading from 50 feet beyond Barbara's body to the rutted dirt lane that connected to Halstead. After the body was found, a half dozen witnesses came forward with a new clue. All said that on the day of her abduction, they spotted a new Buick with a cream-colored top parked at the dump site between 10.30 and 11. The trunk was open, though they saw nobody around. Someone said the car was green, others said maroon. Another person reported seeing a tall, thin man in the area at about the same time. But ultimately, no one was charged with the murder, although Vicap did identify Redmond years later. So what happened to him is he moved to uh, Grand Island, Nebraska in 1962. So he kind of took off, right? So when he was done with the carnival? Yeah. At this point? Yeah. And then he seemed to fall off the radar after 1962. Yeah. But on but one Philadelphia detective who was handed the Jane Marie Althoff homicide file was stunned how Redmond's name jumped out. And then other cold case cops got interested really fast, too, in connecting all of these together. So he was finally arrested in 1988. What? He was arrested? And he was charged in in the Althoff murder. Holy shit. That's a long time. But the thing was, detectives had zeroed in on him the day after the child's murder. 
Um, they had this guy the day after it happened and they let him go. Her, excuse me, her school friend Robert Price told the Associated Press in the early 90s, but they finally got him. And then Redmond started blabbing. Jane Marie had bothered him for more rides on the Ferris wheel, and he smothered her to shut her up, is what he said. Cops had issued an arrest warrant for Redmond just months later in early 1952, but he could not be found, which we already said. Yeah. He, he was arrested at his Grand Island home and extradited to Pennsylvania in 1988. Inside his grim abode, cops found a treasure trove of soiled panties, the, oh, the kind young girls God. would wear. Uh, Remember when that girl's yeah, was missing? Yeah, what a fucking sicko. And then a judge ruled that detectives weren't playing by the book and let let him out on bail for $1. What? What? Yeah. Wait, what? Why? What? I don't know. It didn't go into specifics about what the Jinx. actual... <laughs> we both said, yeah, I know at the same time. Um, uh, uh, so, um, while... Awaiting trial at his Nebraska home, Redmond died at the age of 70 in 1992 of acute emphysema and heart troubles. His death sealed shut forever many of the answers generations of detectives and loved ones had desperately longed for, but there was never any real doubt about the who part of the equation. An inmate turned stooly to, told cops that Redmond smirked when he told him about the Eltoff murder. They may have me on this one, but not the others, Ugh. he said. Man, gross. that guy's burning So, yeah, it's yeah. gross. Jeez, it is very gross. I, I feel like you could... You could easily prevent all this by, like, if somebody could just time travel back to the 50s and be like, hey, uh, supervise your kids or, like, don't let yeah. them walk places unattended. Six blocks all the, by themselves. I mean, you right. and I have talked several times about how we are a little bit more, like, almost too alarmist these days. Like, yeah. you can't, like, our our kids' school is, like, literally behind our neighborhood. Like, you could walk to it from here, like. Yeah, but I was not allowed to walk my kids to school. Like they're not allowed to walk; they have to take a car. I'm like, what if I didn't have a car? Like, why can't we walk? It's right. Nope, they got to be in the car rider line. Like, what yeah, are you talking about? It's so, weird. But and we talk about like hitchhiking used to be a common thing. Yeah, you know, everybody used mm -hmm. to hitchhike, and it really wasn't that dangerous. Like you people. Yeah, there was a podcast I listened to yeah. where they talked about the history of hitchhiking, and they said that. Um, the the fear mongering with hitchhiking came about because of what was it was it the auto industry or it was oh yeah people trying to sell cars i think you said it was yeah like, they were yeah. trying to sell cars like, no, we won't so sell they enough cars publicized these one. uh murders and stuff that happened with hitchhikers but it, it was really pretty rare for um people to be because generally people don't go around just abducting children and murdering, and murdering them people or whatever. and stuff yeah but if there's one, you know, yeah, like this makes you think like, yeah, they should have like, why didn't you let your 10 year old go? Well, you were telling me about, uh, was it a, a six year old walk to a boxing event by herself or something? That was in and the fifties. Yeah. Fifties. It was murdered. Like a six year old. Like, yeah. That's insane. My six year olds couldn't leave the house without, I mean, go anywhere. Yeah. Without, I mean, not even in the yard, I would let them go. So I don't know. It's, different, it's so weird. Just different, different time. time. Like, you can't even imagine those times, I guess. Yeah, and I guess depending on location, you know, yeah. what neighborhood you're in, is it Mayberry or Detroit? You know, whatever. So, mm -hmm. yeah. Yes. Well, boy, that's gross. Yeah. Uh, so hopefully, <laughs> here's a couple. Here's a couple palate cleansers before we jump into Kitty's thing. Okay. Uh, uh, between 1943 and 51, fictional Collie Lassie was the inspiration for several feature films produced by Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer 
MGM. With completion of the seventh film in 1951, MGM planned no further films for the Lassie character or Pal, the male dog actor who played Lassie. So on April 26th, in lieu of the $40,000 back pay owed him by MGM, Pal's owner and trainer, Rudd Weatherwax, how's that for a cool name? Yeah, that's a good Rudd one. Weatherwax, <laughs> he was given all rights to the Lassie trademark and the name. So Weatherwax and Pal, appearing as Lassie, began to perform at county fairs, carnivals, rodeos, hopefully not the same carnival as that guy, right. and other venues. They would eventually make the TV series in 1954 that ran for like 17 years or something. So getting the rights was mm -hmm. very beneficial for him. Um, so that was kind of just a, a, a thing that happened in 51. And then uh, guitarist of Kiss, Ace Fraley, was born on uh, April 27th. Okay. I won't go into Ace Fraley's backstory. Thank you. Uh, that I'll save that for my <laughs> vice president and Kiss Kiss podcast. members podcast. Uh, but <laughs> that'll bring us to April 29th, and Kitty's going to close us out this week with a story. Uh, so, Kitty, take it away. April 29th, right? That's your date. Yeah, I had April 6th as the premiere. Oh, but whoops. Oh, boy, you I, really goofed up. I thought it was April 29th, so I might have to. It, oh. it was hard to nail down. I will okay. say that. Like, all of my really <laughs> reputable sources yeah. just said April 1951. Okay. So, yeah. in April 1951, we get the thing from another world. Ooh, sci-fi um, movie, right? Oh, cool. Yes, yes. Um, So, it was based on a story called Who Goes There? Um which was a popular sci-fi story written by John W. Campbell Jr. Uh, his pen name was Don A. Stewart. And fun fact, his wife's name was Donna Stewart. So they, uh, that's oh, where funny. he got his pen name. Don, yeah. Donna, um, Donna but the film is actually super important. So I watched it for the first time the other day mm. and thoroughly enjoyed it. Did you? Know, you? However many years later. Yeah. You watched the whole film? Later. You watched the whole film for Yeah. This? Yes, that's a well, real researcher. You know, I, I have to say I chose this story because I've always loved aliens. Yeah. In fact, <laughs> as little six-year-old me told my mother that for my birthday party, we were going to do an Alien Disco 2001 theme. Oh, that's funny. Um, <laughs> so I love a good alien story. Um, and I have to say the film still holds up. And part of the reason okay. that is is because this was the first time that Hollywood – really invested in any sci-fi story on film. Yeah. So before yeah. this, um, sci-fi and even horror to some extent was definitely seen as kind of like not a serious film medium. Right. Yeah. Um, and so Howard Hawks, who had directed films, he did everything from like His Girl Friday and Gentlemen Prefer Blondes to Scarface and Red River. Right. Um, he decided that he was going to buy the rights to the story Who Goes There because he was starting to see how popular sci-fi stories and comics were mm -hmm. after World War II. Oh. Um, and so he really invested in the story. Now, they it does differ from the story a lot. Mm -hmm. um, in fact, the 1982 remake, The Thing, is much closer to the original storyline. Uh, but in the film, they basically have 
an alien who um, is found in a flying saucer that's found embedded in the ice by a team of scientists um, and military in the Arctic Circle. Um, And they blow up the saucer almost immediately, which is (laughs) hilarious. You know, it's just a group of white men who think they know everything and immediately (laughs) up in smoke. Um, And... So the film premiered in 51 amid a lot of similar flying saucer content. It was a really big thing, but it came into theaters just a few days before the similarly themed The Man from Planet X. But that means, so the thing from Another World was the first film of its kind because it got in right in the nick of time. Um, And... As American Cinematographer Magazine puts it, it was so popular because it had an adroit blend of old-fashioned horror, newfangled science fiction, He-Man adventure, and down-to-earth romance. (laughs) Um, So, Christopher Nyby is credited with directing the film, although there's a lot of debate about that. Um, A lot of people believe that Hawks actually directed it. Um, really? And so the cast, it's really interesting. Different members of the cast have cited, no, Nyby did in fact direct it. Whereas others were like, no, Hawks is really the one oh, that's who weird. was directing us. Wow. Controversy. Um, but, you know, it's very much in Hawks' signature style with the overlapping dialogue and that sort of thing. And it's very realistic. But at the time, Christopher Nyby was very green. So he could have just been. Mm-hmm. mimicking mm-hmm. that signature style since Hawks was producing the mm-hmm. film. Um, so they filmed it and they hoped to film it on location and have the support of the Air Force. And so they sent the script over to the U.S. military. <laughs> but the response they got uh, was basically that there is no, you know, the military did not believe in flying saucers. That was their official statement was their was no such thing. Yeah. Um, and so they kind of condemned the making of the film. Oh, really? And later they went back and said that they would give their approval of the film if it was portrayed as a dream, if the happenings of the story were portrayed as happening in a dream. What? Um, but of course, you know, that was a no-go for the film team because it would have discounted everything. So yeah, I'm glad they, they just didn't went bu- ahead. I'm glad they didn't budge on that. That's cool. Um, and so they had to kind of like find airplanes and uniforms and that sort of thing outside of having a connection to the Air Force. Um, and they ended up filming in Glacier National Park in Montana and then in a Los Angeles ice storage plant, which I thought was really interesting because watching it, I was wondering if, you know, like in a lot of old movies, if like all the snow is asbestos yeah. or something like yeah, that. Well, I always wondered yeah. that too. Um, but they actually had a lot of snow and then all of the indoor scenes were filmed at the ice plant. So like the people's breath oh, and, that you realistic. see is real because yeah. they were freezing. Oh, oh my yeah. yeah. <laughs> Can you imagine acting in a movie like that? Uh, no. <laughs> um So the cast featured mostly stage and radio actors because they, the official stance was they wanted to make it more realistic by not having any names that people would recognize, Mm -hmm. but um, the budget was fairly limited as well, which was 
probably more of the reason. And The Thing is played by James Arness, who would later go to star in Gunsmoke as Marshal Matt Dillon. Uh, But apparently he was so embarrassed by having to portray this alien (laughs) that he didn't attend the premiere of the film and he would never talk about the experience later on in his career. (laughs) Um, But the stunts and special effects were really revolutionary for their time. It's one of the first, if not the first, full body burns on screen. So where they light a stuntman completely on fire from head to toe. Oh, wow. um, For a scene. And it's, it's really interesting how they did a lot of the things. There's an electrocution scene that they had to kind of figure out how to do. Um, but of course, one of the things that a lot of people do know about this movie is that the makeup for the thing was a really big hurdle for them oh. to overcome. Mm-hmm. So initially, they allotted $10,000 of their budget for makeup experimentation to kind of figure out what they wanted the alien to look like. Um, And the alien that they ended up going with is very humanoid, kind of has that Frankenstein's monster Mm -hmm. quality, um, which is a big deviation from the who goes their story, but uh, they couldn't ever get it where they were happy with it, ended up spending, you know, twice as much as they were allocated to try and experiment with this makeup look. And eventually they kind of pulled a Jaws sort of thing where they just cut all of the close-up scenes of the thing. So when it was released, they actually um, included notes for film houses that any scene that included the thing should be toned down, out of focus, or darkened so that the audience in 1951 actually never saw anything more than an outline or kind of an out-of-focus image of what the extraterrestrial looks like. But now if you watch the film, all of those notes have been disregarded. So you do get Arnes in his makeup and you can see a clearer image of him. Um, The last thing I'll say, because I did think this was interesting, is... Of course, I had heard of The Thing probably because of the 1982 remake. And I think in 2011, they did a prequel that's in the same universe. Um, But I never knew it was called The Thing from Another World. I always just thought it was The Thing. Yeah, Yeah, that's what I thought too. Me too. Yeah, I was just realizing that that's the same thing just now as I'm Googling the pictures. Yeah, and originally the... You know, the production company did have it titled simply The Thing. Yeah. But in the months leading up to the film's release, a very popular song called The Thing came out. And so they had to add that little extra part at the end. And then in all of their marketing materials, there's a statement in many of them that accompanies it that says this photo play is in no way associated with the popular song of the the same title they had to differentiate so i thought that was very interesting but of course you know this has inspired a lot of our more modern sci-fi directors and writers and that sort of thing and i have to say that the screenplay is really funny like the comedy they include is it still holds up really yeah i I mean i thoroughly enjoyed it you did where did you watch it if you don't like 
Uh, I remember? you can like get it from Prime, Amazon Prime that- for like two ninety nine. Okay, so yeah. you didn't find it free anywhere. No, <laughs> I didn't look that hard, but yeah. I'm I'm one of these like I'm just like I'll wait till it's free unless I really really <laughs> want to watch it. But now that you, I mean, you've done a good job of selling this because I really kind of want to watch it now. Especially that you say it holds up because a lot of movies from this time do not hold up. Uh, I mean, you know, the special effects are you you yeah. cheap by today's standards, right. of course. But in terms of the just the dialogue you know i was really impressed especially for a sci-fi movie but i guess that goes back to why it was so revolutionary for the time yeah Mm -hmm. it didn't have that um stylized kind of speech like uh the 40s the 30s and 40s you mean yeah and i mean it's just like the jokes that are written in like made me laugh and the romance is really realistic you know it's not Mm -hmm. overly cheesy i guess you would say um they kind of have a nice banter that still holds up i think to a modern audience today well that's 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 mm. good and i would think that you know nowadays like i've been watching older movies like the the greatest the best picture movies and everything now it's rare to find a movie of this time that isn't either misogynistic or racist or like all these yeah. problematic oh, well, things. It's definitely misogynistic. You know, it's just a bunch of white men <laughs> yeah. running around trying to yeah. destroy this thing from another planet. Right. But I guess, you know, you I enjoyed it for what it is. Yeah. And yeah. you see a lot of where we're drawing from sure. in later sci-fi and horror movies. Yeah. I was not aware of that. You said there was a 2008 sequel or something or i think that's like a a 2011 yeah but i think it's actually like technically a prequel to what we get in the 1982 film okay which is a remake oh an 82 yeah i didn't know there was an 82 film that was the remake Mm -hmm. that the other one was a prequel okay i didn't know i don't i i don't know much about the thing and i never did but now i do a little bit and yeah, thank you. Great it. job. They should really pay you the, the whoever's still making money on this. They should, Amazon Prime should hire you as their uh, <laughs> go-to person. Thanks, Kitty. That was awesome. Uh, man, I really want to watch that. Don't you? Mm-hmm. That's really good. This was really cool. Yep. This is like a pretty good, succinct episode. I think. Like you guys. Absolutely. Both, yeah, those were. Even though that was, I mean, that was the yeah. child killing and raping, but. It was still, I think what I liked about it was that it's like just victim after victim. It was just like quick, 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 quick. And it's a carny. Yeah. The carny factor helps. But anyway, thank you guys both. This was Yes, great. thank you. Uh, yeah, you guys are great ladies. Uh, and History for Dicks, thanks for listening, you at home. And please like, rate, review, thank subscribe. You. And please check out The Grand Project. You got uh, any episodes coming up that we should be excited about, Kitty? We're on a little bit of a hiatus right now, but we just got our website up, uh, so you can check out all the past episodes there or wherever you get your podcast. Yes, the Grand <laughs> Project it. really is really, really worth your time. Uh, check it out. It's wonderful. Um, so, yeah, thanks for being here, Kitty. Uh, thank you. Yes, for, and thank you. Uh, doing a podcast with me after all this time. It's time to get out of here, Chuck Berry. It's time to get out of here. Thank you, guys. Thanks, Kitty. Thank you.
Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. Find out more at QueenCityPodcastNetwork.com. Make me some cookies, bitch. Thank you. Love you.